Good morning. This is on. You can turn to John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. It's page 1049 in your pew Bibles. And we will just in a few minutes be reading from that passage. My wife Jenny and I were in Michigan for Thanksgiving. We had a great time. We were there for a week. Uh, It was great to be there and to uh, reconnect with some old friends and, of course, our family. And um, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving as well. Um, I was just thinking about this this morning. Four weeks from today is Christmas. Kind of crazy. So when I was at home, I sorted through some old basketball cards. I used to collect basketball cards when I was a kid. And uh, these basketball cards were were just kind of everything I did. It's all about basketball cards when I was in middle school, early 90s, this is. And uh, one of my favorite players in the early 90s was a guy named Harold Miner. Now, how many of you have heard of Harold Miner? That is impressive. The the first service, there's only four. So I think there's about six or seven in this service. Harold Miner, he won the dunk contest twice in the early 90s. Uh, He was the 12th round draft pick, and uh, he played for the Miami Heat and then some other teams. Um, And and people had huge expectations of this guy, Harold Miner. Huge expectations. In fact, the media started calling him Baby Jordan. Baby Jordan. I mean, that's about as as big expectation-wise as you can get. But he never lived up to these expectations. He never lived up to these expectations. In fact, after five, excuse me, four years of relatively unremarkable play, he was cut from the NBA. Now, I made this guy essentially my hero. I loved Harold Miner. And... Obviously, things didn't pan out for him. Now, unfortunately, I think this sort of thing happens in our life. We make people to be more than what they deserve. And then when they fall on their faces, we flip out. We don't know what to do. We don't get it. It means a lot more when the people we've made into heroes are more important than just a basketball player, right? Have you ever made someone larger than life, larger than they deserve, only to find out that they will disappoint? They aren't perfect. Maybe it was a girlfriend or a boyfriend when you were uh, younger, you were growing up, that you made everything. Maybe it was a spouse that just isn't the same person you married five or 10 or 15 years ago. Maybe it was a pastor who let you down or a politician who rises up, promises the world, and we find out that he or she has a skeleton in their closet, and then they disappoint us. Maybe it's a legendary football coach like Joe Paterno. He's been in the news recently. A well-respected, positive influence in the football community. In fact, for 46 years, This guy's record was impeccable as a coach, as a leader of football teams. He could do no wrong, we all thought. He's above that. But he wasn't. He messed up really bad. And today, thousands of people, thousands of people are shocked, bewildered, and hurt as a result. 
Now, for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about this afternoon, you can go home and Google Joe Paterno, and you'll see some interesting things come up. We make people larger than life, larger than they deserve, and then we don't know what to do when they fail. This is what we call hero worship, and it is prevalent in our culture. It is prevalent in our culture today. And what's underneath this hero worship is a deep-seated desire, I believe, to glorify, to honor humanity beyond what's appropriate. Now, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging other people's gifts. I don't have a problem with saying, wow, you did a great job there. I affirm your faithfulness. I affirm your good deeds. There's nothing wrong with that. Perhaps their instinct to point to someone and say, yes, you did it right. We should honor you. Perhaps that instinct is actually okay. But I would say often it's misplaced or at least disproportioned. Maybe it's not our hero worship that is wrong, but the object of our worship. What if we were never meant to be great? What if we were never meant to be great? For the last three weeks, Pastor Jeremy has faithfully taken us through the first 18 verses of John. And this is the prologue. This is the introduction of the entire book. It's where all of the major themes in John, or maybe just one theme, that's Jesus, is introduced. And we saw in these opening verses Jesus as the Word. He is the perfect, ultimate expression of God. He is the final speech of God. We saw Jesus as the light of all men. He shines. We saw Jesus as God incarnate, God in the flesh. He took on humanity for us. He became a human for lost people like you and me. And now we turn to the beginning of the story. The introduction is over, the story, the narrative, it begins, and it begins with the last prophet before Jesus comes on the scene who happens to be Jesus' cousin, first cousin, John the Baptist. So let me read this passage, and then we'll pray. John chapter 1 again, starting in verse 18, page 1049. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you this morning that we want to be great. 
we want to be great in ways that we should not. Father, forgive us. Father, we need you to break through our hardened hearts. We need a word from you. So I ask that you would speak to us this morning. Speak to us clearly. Give us a word. And I pray that your spirit would align the words that are being proclaimed this morning into our hearts. Transform us. Help us to live out what we see in these verses in our own lives. Thank you for John the Baptist. We especially thank you for Jesus, who is the only great one. We pray in his name. Amen. So a little background of John the Baptist. Most of us know John the Baptist. He was this obscure, weird dude. Um, He was a cousin of Jesus, as I said. Now, it's interesting. John the Baptist knew Jesus at a very early age. In fact, John the Baptist knew Jesus when he was in his mother's belly. You guys remember the story, hopefully. Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes in, and uh, Jesus is, is within her belly. And, and John says the Spirit came upon John and helped John, this little pre-baby baby, to recognize Jesus, to recognize that this Jesus was the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And it said that he leapt within his mother's belly. I have no idea what that means. So like a sharp kick or a punch. I don't know what that means, but it means something good. It means that John got it. He got it. He got who Jesus was, and he wasn't even born yet. Or he was, at least we can say, starting to get it. And so for the rest of his life, I think John the Baptist had this special God-given knowledge of who Jesus, his first cousin, was. So after he comes of age, he becomes older. He begins to preach in the wilderness. Kind of a weird place to preach, set up a preaching ministry. But he begins to preach that the kingdom and the Messiah are on its way, are on their way. The kingdom is God's perfect reign on earth. So he's saying, hey, God's perfect reign, the way things ought to be, will soon be. And the Messiah was this great figure in the Old Testament that would come back and usher in the kingdom, turn things around for God's people. And so Israel was longing for both this Messiah as well as the kingdom. And so what John did was he not only preached the kingdom and preached the Messiah, but he also called the Jews to repentance and baptism. He was trying to prepare their way for the coming kingdom and the coming Messiah. So he's calling God's people, hey, you need to repent, you need to get right with God. I'm going to baptize you, which is an act of cleansing. John the Baptist was a weirdo, right? And let's think about this for a second. He ate locusts and honey. He lived in the wilderness. He wore really weird clothing. He was a strange dude. Single ladies out here, he's not the kind of guy that you'd want to bring home to mom and dad, Right? John the Baptist. But here's the crazy thing. As strange as he was, he had a strong following. Lots of people listened to his preaching and teaching. Lots of people were baptized by him. Lots of people responded in repentance because of his ministry. Even after Jesus came and died, John the Baptist had a following. Isn't that interesting? 
People followed John the Baptist even after Jesus came, lived, died, and was risen. So I think that's part of the reason why John, the gospel writer here, is including the story. He wants to clarify who this John the Baptist is. So as I look at this passage, I see three movements in the conversation. Three movements in this conversation. We're going to look at each, each of these movements. They all revolve around who John the Baptist is and who John the Baptist is not. Okay, so the first movement, verses 19 through 21, John the Baptist clarifies who he is not. Okay, so this delegation was sent from Jerusalem to try to figure out, okay, who is this character? He's, he's going crazy in the, the wilderness. He's preaching. People are coming to him. They're following him. He's dunking people in the water. What's going on here? So they send this delegation of Levites and priests to figure that out. Now, notice that John the Baptist, he doesn't begin with who he is. He begins with who he's not. And no one asked him whether he was the Christ. No one said, John, are you the Messiah? He freely confesses that. He says, I am not the Christ. Notice the emphasis that John the gospel writer gives in verse 20. He, that's the Baptist, did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. Literally in the Greek, it says, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed that I am not the Christ. Sounds really awkward. Now, why the repetition, John, the gospel writer, Well, I think maybe a story from Martin Luther's life may help us understand this a little bit. Martin Luther was, of course, this great, uh, the great leader of the the Reformation. And in the 16th century, he was brought before this council and he was asked to recant his shady teachings. So he begins to explain his views and uh, he was quickly interrupted. In fact, his interrogators, they said to him, Brother Martin, answer us directly, non cornutum. Non cornutum. It's a, it's a Latin phrase that literally means without horns. In other words, don't be clever. Don't be crafty. Don't use rhetorical techniques to get, get out of this, to wiggle out of this. Be straight up with us. Answer us without horns. And so Luther gives his famous answer that I'm sure some of you have heard. He says, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant. There is no ambiguity about his words. And in our passage here, John the Baptist does the same thing. He answers, or he says, I am not the Christ without any ambiguity. The gospel writer, John, uses the strongest possible method in the Greek to show how emphatic John the Baptist was in saying, I'm not the Christ. Remember, John the Baptist had this following, right? When Jesus was alive and after. And there probably was confusion. Hey, is this, this guy in the wilderness? Maybe he's the Messiah. So he had to clarify what was going on. John the Baptist had a clear understanding of who Jesus was and who he was. And so that's why he says, I am not the Christ. He's saying here, essential, listen, I want to make this clear. I don't want to mince words. I don't want to be ambiguous. I say this with no reservations. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the guy you're waiting for. I'm not the guy you're longing for. I'm not the guy you're hoping for. I am entirely different. 
That's where he begins. Next, the priests and the Levites, they ask him if he's Elijah. You guys remember Elijah. He's that prophet in the Old Testament. And at the end of his life, he didn't die. He was taken up into heaven on a chariot. And so in Malachi chapter 4, there's a prophecy that Elijah is going to return before the last days. So it's, of course, natural for this delegation to wonder, hey, maybe this guy, this weirdo in the, in the wilderness, maybe he's John the Baptist. Or excuse me, maybe he is John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. But John the Baptist denies that as well. You know, it's interesting that Jesus identifies John the Baptist as Elijah in Matthew and Luke. Isn't that interesting? Not, not John the Baptist actually come back in the flesh, but John the Baptist's ministry was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. So Jesus says, this is Elijah. John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah. Well, I think we should all go with Jesus with this. This is fascinating to me. John does not see as much significance in his own ministry as Jesus did. John the Baptist undersold himself. He didn't realize that, okay, he's not the Christ, but he does have an important role. Now, if you're like me, then it's easy for you to exaggerate your importance, your significance, your authority, your power, or at least that you are entitled to these or more of these. It's easy. But perhaps like John the Baptist, we aren't meant to know, at least in this lifetime, our significance within God's kingdom. Perhaps our presence is meant to be simple, faithful, and humble while only God knows our importance. Back to the text. Okay, so he's not Elijah. How about the prophet? Notice that they didn't ask whether he was a prophet, because we know that he was a prophet. They asked if he was the prophet. Okay, this is a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, and it's actually a reference to Moses. There would be a prophet like Moses who would come again. Now remember that Moses wasn't just an ordinary pass, uh, excuse me, an ordinary prophet. He was the mediator of the old covenant. He led God's people out of physical bondage. This is the Exodus. And that event would forever change God's people. Moses was a special special prophet. And so Deuteronomy says Okay, there's going to be a prophet that's like Moses who comes onto the scene in the last days. But this prophet, this Deuteronomy 18 prophet, he would be a mediator of a new covenant. And he would be God's chief instrument to deliver his people from spiritual bondage, to rescue them out of slavery to sin, to create a new exodus for God's people. Of course, from our vantage point as the New Testament church, we can sit here and say, wow, that that sounds a lot like Jesus. And it was. It is. Prophecy is about Jesus. Back to our story, John the Baptist listens and says, no, that's not me either. I'm not the prophet in Deuteronomy. So, of course, at this point, everybody, including ourselves, is left wondering, who in the world are you? John the Baptist. Who are you? Look at verses 22 and 23. 
Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. So the priests and the Levites, they looked for John's identity in Malachi and Deuteronomy, but John the Baptist takes them to Isaiah. He takes them to Isaiah. This makes sense because Isaiah clearly, clearly identifies the coming Messiah and the coming kingdom. And that's the message that John the Baptist has been preaching about. In fact, do you remember Jesus, Jesus in, in Nazareth, his hometown, in his synagogue? Do you remember uh, the, the story where the people, they, they told him, okay, hey, you're a visiting rabbi. Why don't you read the scripture for today and then give us a little sermon? So Jesus reads the scripture of the day, which is Isaiah 61, and he, he reads this. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord. And then here's, here's uh, Jesus' sermon on that text. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. You know, in other words, he's saying, listen, I'm that guy. I am the Messiah. Let's close in prayer. This is the shortest sermon ever. John the Baptist goes back to chapter 40 in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is just getting started to talk about the coming Messiah, the coming kingdom. He's just starting to talk about that. And he goes back to 40 and he, he, he points out this little section. It's the section that was read earlier uh, this morning. Points out this little section about this prophet, this prophet who calls for an improvement in the road system in the desert to accommodate God's people who are in exile, accommodate their return from exile, and also to accommodate the coming Messiah and the kingdom which he will usher as well. So God's coming to rescue us through this Messiah. He's coming to bring bring the kingdom. And this particular prophet, this Isaiah 40 prophet, tells the people to get ready. And John the Baptist says, that's me. I am that prophet. I'm the guy who's going to tell the people to build a road, to bring down the hills, to dig a tunnel if necessary, to fill up the ditches, to make ready the road for Messiah King Jesus to come. It's interesting that the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 presents Jesus as the word, the word, the final, the ultimate expression of who God is, God's final speech to us. Also presents him as the light, the light that shines, the light of men. Jesus, we see in the first 18 verses, is God in flesh. He's God incarnate. God taking on flesh, adding humanity to his previous divinity. And we see in our passage that John the Baptist was just a voice. Jesus is the word. John is just a voice for the word. He was just a mouthpiece. He was just a communicator. He wasn't the hope of nations, but he spoke about that hope. He wasn't the king, but he prepared the way 
for the king. More often than not, I am not okay with just being a voice. I'm not okay with just being a voice. I want more. In a culture that glorifies football coaches, pop stars, humanitarians, even pastors to levels just shy of the divine, it's not easy to just be a voice, a pointer, a a preparer, a servant of another's glory. But this is exactly what John the Baptist was, and that's what God has called us to be here at South Shore Baptist Church a voice. We are a simple, a faithful, a humble voice calling out about the word to a dying world. So back to the story. Let's look at verses 24 through 27. This is the last movement in this conversation that John the Baptist had with the priests and Levites. Verse 24. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptized. So this uh, delegation, they say, okay, you're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. So why in the world do you baptize? You see, baptism wasn't new on the scene when John the Baptist started to do it. In fact, in the first century, the Jews baptized Gentiles when they converted into Judaism. And these converts would actually baptize themselves. They would get in the tank and they would, you know, go down and that would be it. They would baptize themselves. Nobody baptized them. So this delegation naturally is wondering, why in the world would you need to baptize another Jew? It's already in God's, within God's people. They didn't get that this was a new kind of baptism because something unbelievably new was about to happen. The Messiah was coming. The kingdom is, is at hand. It's near. So this baptism was to prepare them in a new way for the coming Messiah and his kingdom. So here they're essentially asking John, okay, you've got to be the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet because if not, then you don't have the authority to baptize Jews. You don't have the authority. You don't have the stature. You don't have the power. You don't have the authority to do this. And then John's response is awesome. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In other words, he says, listen, delegation, forget me. Let's talk about about someone else. Let's talk about someone else who has divine stature, who has unequaled importance, who has unparalleled authority. Let's look to him for a moment. Now, you have to understand this whole bit with the sandals, with the, the strap of the sandal. We have to understand a little bit of culture to understand what's going on here. Students of rabbis, like Jesus' disciples, not only listened to the lectures and followed their masters, their rabbis around, these students actually functioned as their rabbis' personal servants. So in other words, they took care of his needs, they made housing arrangements, they prepared food, 
But there's one thing a disciple would never do. One thing a disciple in a rabbinical school in the first century would never do. That one thing distinguished a disciple from an actual slave. Disciples would never, would never be required to take care of their master's sandals. This was the most humiliating task, and it was left to the lowest of the low, the slaves. So John here, he's saying, forget me. Let's think about him who comes. I'm lower I'm lower than his disciples. In fact, I'm even lower than his slave. Don't look at me. I'm just a voice. Look to him. Give him your attention. Recently, I read a story about an Italian conductor in the 20th century. His name's Arturo Toscanini. Arturo Toscanini. Uh, one evening, he was conducting the Beethoven, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony famous symphony. Um, He was conducting it, and it went very well. In fact, it was so good that um, the audience went berserk. They went crazy. They're standing up. They applauded for a long time. Finally, after several minutes, they calm down, sit down, and Toscanini, he leans into his orchestra, and he looks intently upon them, and he says, gentlemen, I am nothing. Gentlemen, you are nothing. But gentlemen, Beethoven is everything. Toscanini and his orchestra did not create the beautiful melodies and intricacies of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, but they had the privilege of being a voice, an instrument, a servant of Beethoven. And this this attitude... This is the same attitude that John the Baptist had about Christ, and it's the same attitude that God calls us to have as well. I am nothing. You are nothing. Christ is everything. We have the privilege of being a voice, a servant to his glory. So the key, I believe, to John the Baptist's radical humility that we see here, his, his radical attitude that he had here, was that he saw himself in light of Jesus. He recognized himself only in the wake of recognizing Jesus. In other words, if you want to know who you are, if you want to know who you really are, and this is a huge question in today's culture, right? Everybody wants to know, who am I? If you really want to know who you are, you need to put down the horoscopes. You need to put down the philosophy books. Stop trying to to feel a spark within yourself. Set aside the personality tests. Perhaps even set aside the spiritual gifts tests. Put away religion, which says, I am what I do. And instead, we ought to look full in the face of Jesus. As you see him, as you see the word, as you see the light, as you see God in the flesh, you will painfully realize that you are nothing and that Christ is everything. You know, I think it was this realization that helped John the Baptist later say in chapter 3, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. 
Jesus must increase and I must decrease. This reminds me of Charles Simeon's prayer. Charles Simeon was a pastor in the 18th century uh, who, who had a lot, of, um, a lot of oppression, a lot of persecution, but he was faithful. And one of his prayers that he prayed often was, Father, grow me downward in humiliation and grow me upward in adoration for you. What a prayer. Father, grow me downward in humiliation and grow me upward in adoration for you. What would it look like for this church community, for this body, to pray these words? What what would it look like for this church to have these values in place? For us to be so humble and yet for Christ to be so clear. You know, it's interesting how John the Gospel writer uh, frames the first 28 verses. The first 18 verses, again, we've said it 100 times, they're all about Jesus. They paint in broad and fine brushstrokes a beautiful portrait of Christ. And then in our passage, the gospel writer sets humanity in contrast to this beautiful picture of Jesus. Jesus is the word. We are a voice. John moves us from seeing and experiencing this glorious God-man in the prologue to then seeing and experiencing ourselves in view of this glorious God-man. This speaks very well and very clearly to my experiences in college. I became a Christian early in college. I was about 18 or 19 years old. And one of the things that I had to come to, come to the conclusion of was, was what we're talking about today. I needed to see these truths, and it was painful. I needed to understand that I'm nothing, that I'm sinful, that I have a, a, a tremendous need, that I have, I have a desperate need for something or rather someone to make sense of this mess that I'm living in. And so that someone was Jesus and he penetrated my world from the outside. And so I began to see that I am nothing and Christ is everything. But then I, I dove head first into ministry. I got, got a girlfriend, I was an engineering student, everything looked good from the outside. In fact, the Lord graciously blessed my ministry efforts. There, there's, there's success, there's fruit being produced. From the outside, again, everything looked great, but it wasn't great. Inside, things were very different. Inside, there was a cauldron of pride and self-pity and entitlement. You see, I was interested in my own little kingdom. That was the only thing that I wanted to build. I wanted to build up my own name and my own glory. And graciously, God brought that thing down. He shut it down. It was embarrassing. It was painful. It was shameful. But it was very necessary and kind. You see, God is not interested in investing in our own little kingdoms, whatever that might be. He's interested in only one kingdom, and that's the kingdom of his son, Jesus. So I think this morning God has given us a new definition of great. We have a new definition of great before us. First, we see that Jesus Christ is the only great one and that we are nothing. Now, perhaps you've never heard this before, and you feel the weight of its truth 
It's heavy on you. I'm nothing. Jesus is everything. This is, this is heavy. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to die for each of us that recognize these truths, that, that he is everything and that we are nothing. He came to die for us so that we can be reconciled to the Father. There's some of you in the audience, uh, in the congregation this morning, who might be seeking, seeking truth. I just want to encourage you this morning to put your trust and faith and hope, not in yourself, not in your heroes. They will fail you. You will fail yourself. Put your hope in the, the only hero, Jesus. Put your trust in him. Lean on him. We also come to see something else in this passage. We come to see that we are only great. We are only great when we make much of Jesus. We are only great, like John the Baptist, when we make much of Jesus. We are great when we lay our lives down for Jesus' worship. We are great when we become slaves, not to our own reputation, but to his reputation. We are great when we go last, not first. When we serve when no one is looking. In other words, we are great when we are a simple humble voice for Jesus. A voice that now prepares the way, not for Jesus' first coming, but for his second coming. Let's pray. Father, you, you are holy and you are righteous and you are awesome. You are above us. You are transcendent. You are glorious and supreme. And we say, see these attributes especially as we glance at Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Thank you that through him we find reconciliation to you, our Father. Jesus is everything. And Lord, as we recognize this truth We come to see ourselves and we become undone. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We're at the end of our rope. But you've made a way. You've made a way through Christ. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who's building their own little kingdom. And I pray that you would bring that thing down. That you would shut it down. I pray that you would receive all the honor and the glory that is due your name through this church community. I pray that this building, the success of any ministry that takes place in this building would be for the glory of your son, Jesus. And I pray that we would not pay that truth lip service, but it would be the true motivation of each of our hearts. We exalt you, Jesus, and we confess again that we are nothing and that you are everything. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.